Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the Q2 2021 AGF Management Limited Earnings Conference Call. My name is Vanessa and I will be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. During the question and answer session, if you have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Adrian Basaraba. Sir, you may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning, everyone. I'm Adrian Basaraba, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of AGF Management Limited. Today, we will be discussing the financial results for the second quarter of fiscal 2021. Slides supporting today's call and webcast can be found in the Investor Relations section of AGF.com. Also speaking on the call today will be Kevin McCree, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer. For the question and answer period with investment analysts following the presentation, Judy Goldring, President and Head of Global Distribution, will also be available to address questions. Turning to slide four, I'll provide an agenda for today's call. We'll discuss the highlights of Q2 2021, provide an update on the key segments of our business, review our financial results, discuss our capital and liquidity position, and finally, close by outlining our focus for the remainder of 2021. After prepared remarks, we'll be happy to take questions. That, I'll turn the call over to Kevin. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you everyone for joining us today. During Q2 of 2021, we continue to execute against our strategy and stated goals. I'll begin with some highlights. Our strong business momentum from Q1 has carried into Q2. AUM and fee earning assets crossed the $40 billion mark during the quarter. Our mutual fund business reported gross sales of $1.1 billion in the quarter, which is more than double the second quarter of last year. Net sales were over $400 million, exceeding Q1 of 2021, which was at the time our best quarter of mutual fund flows in over a decade. At the 2021 Wealth Professional Awards, AGF was named the winner of two awards, Digital Innovator of the Year and Employer of Choice. These honors speak directly to two key drivers of AGF's success over the past year, accelerating digital transformation and employee engagement. In September of last year, we established AGF Wave Asset Management to expand into the Chinese and South Korean markets. During the quarter, AGF Wave and our Chinese strategic partners brought a new strategy, the Wabao China New Era Infrastructure Mandate to market. The new innovative mandate brings together AGF and Wabao's quantitative investment capabilities and provides diversified access to China's robust and growing digital economy and carbon neutral pledge. The strategy will target eligible investors in China and institutions globally looking for access to the Chinese market. Moving on to our private alternatives business. In May, we announced a new arrangement in our partnership with Instar Group. We are proud of the success that AGF and Instar Group achieved together through Instar AGF's two flagship funds, which raised over $2 billion in equity commitments. AGF will retain its economic interest in the funds, including an upcoming third fund, which AGF will support with an anticipated $50 million U.S. dollar capital commitment. 
Growing our private alternatives business remains integral to our strategy as reflected by our ongoing work with AGF's Alternatives Advisory Committee. As well, we will be deepening the platform with our private credit fund launches. The AGF SAF Private Credit Limited Partnership and Trust will achieve first close soon. The LP targets Canadian institutional investors, while the Trust offers more liquidity that is more appealing for Canadian retail investors. Finally, the Board approved an increase in our quarterly dividend from $0.08 cents to $0.09 cents per share starting in Q2 for shareholders of record on July 9th. Starting on slide 6, we will provide updates on our business performance. On this slide, we break down our total AUM and fee-earning assets in the categories disclosed in our MDNA and show comparisons to the prior year. Mutual fund AUM increased by 22%. I'll provide more color on our mutual fund business in a moment. Institutional, sub-advisory, and ETF AUM increased by 1%. As indicated on our previous call, during the quarter, we received an allocation of approximately $150 million from an existing strategic partner to our American growth strategy. We also onboarded a large U.S. institution that selected three of our global and U.S. equity strategies for its SMA platform. While AUM growth for this mandate will occur gradually over time, we are optimistic based on flows for the first two months. Building on the success of this win, we plan to expand our distribution reach by entering into similar relationships with other SMA platforms in the U.S. Looking forward, RFP and RFI activities have remained strong. We continue to see interest from institutional investors in a number of our strategies, which bodes well for future sales. Our private client business continues to demonstrate consistent, steady growth with AUM increasing 19% year-over-year. Our private alternatives AUM and fee-earning assets were $2.1 billion, and we maintain our goal of reaching $5 billion in AUM and fee-earning assets by the end of 2022. As indicated earlier, we recently modified our relationship with Instar AGF. As part of the change, AGF will receive ongoing fees of 14 basis points on Fund 1 and 2 and 7 basis points on Fund 3. AGF will maintain its investment and carried interest participation in Fund 1 and 2. AGF will also invest in and receive a carried interest entitlement in Fund 3. This initiative, along with our robust pipeline of opportunities, will help AGF achieve our goal of reaching $5 billion in AUM and fee-earning assets by the end of 2022. Turning to slide 7, I'll provide some detail on the mutual fund business. After a stellar RRSP season, the Canadian mutual fund industry continued its robust pace, reporting net sales of $33 billion for the three months ending May 31, 2021. AGF's mutual fund business reported net sales of $408 million for the quarter, which is our best quarter of mutual fund flows in over a decade. Excluding net flows from institutional clients invested in mutual funds, net sales were $431 million, compared to net redemptions of $93 million in the second quarter of last year. AGF's sales improvement outpaced that of the industry. While industry net sales are down 17% versus Q1 of 2021, our net sales are up 6% over the same time period. We continue to see year-over-year -year improvements across all channels, IROC, MFDA, and strategic partnerships, 
and strong inflows into multiple categories, including global and U.S. equities, fixed income, and ESG or sustainable opportunities. The momentum in our mutual fund business has continued into June, where we have net sales of approximately $75 million up to June 25th. Before I return the call back to Adrian, I want to give you a quick update on performance. AGF measures mutual fund performance by comparing gross returns before fees relative to peers within the same category, with the first percentile being best possible performance. We target an average percentile ranking versus peers of 50% over one year and 40% over three years. At the end of Q2, average percentile ranking was 53% over the one-year period and 52% over the past three years. The market rotation from growth to value has tempered the performance for some of our growth-oriented strategies. However, it's important to note that one- and three-year performance for our top-selling funds have largely remained in the top quartile. With that, I'll turn the call back over to Adrian. Thank you, Kevin. Slide 8 reflects a summary of our financial results for the second quarter with sequential quarter and year-over-year comparisons. Total EBITDA before commissions for the current quarter is $28.2 million, which is $1.4 million higher than previous quarter and $7 million higher than prior year. For ease of comparison, we've shown our investment management business separate from our private alternatives business. Our investment management business reported EBITDA before commissions of $28.2 million. This is $4.6 million higher than Q1 2021 driven by an increase in AUM and lower SG&A. Recall that Q1 expenses were impacted by timing of the cost of employee benefits. Compared to Q2 2020, investment management EBITDA for commissions was $6.5 million favorable, which was attributable to higher AUM and an increase in our revenue rate. The increase in net revenue more than offset the increase in compensation related to higher mutual fund sales, strong investment performance, and an increase in share price. Q2 EBITDA before commission's margin for our investment management business has improved year-over-year by 160 basis points to 25.8%. Earnings for our private alternatives business were muted this quarter. While our earnings included two months of revenue from fee-earning assets related to our new arrangement with Instar Group, this was offset by fair value adjustments from a strengthening Canadian dollar on investments held in U.S. dollars within our LPs. Diluted EPS was $0.07 cents this quarter, which is a penny lower than Q1 2021 and flat to last year. Our EPS was reduced by the cost of rapid growth, primarily deferred selling commissions, and so it's important to consider the long-term value associated with these sales, while also considering its negative impact on short-term EPS. Our mutual fund business reported gross sales of $1.1 billion, which is 2% higher when compared to Q1 2021, and deferred selling commissions were $17.7 million compared to $15.5 million last quarter. On a percentage basis, DSC sales increased slightly when compared to Q1 2021, but de- decreased when compared to prior year. On our last earnings call, we revised our 2021 guidance to a range of $185 to $190 million to reflect improving growth and related expense impact. During Q2, the improving growth trajectory has continued. Our mutual fund business reported the strongest quarter flows in over a decade. We're working now to contain SG&A 
within $190 million without sacrificing opportunities to grow. We're happy to pay for success-based performance, and while this growth will create short-term strain on our financial results, it will ultimately drive higher value for our shareholders. Again, please keep in mind, sales commissions paid to our salespeople and DSC are expensed immediately and not capitalized, but we'll earn revenue on these sales over a much longer period, generally seven years. So in assessing the appropriateness of expense levels, we're going to consider the investment management margin, which, as I mentioned earlier, improved by 160 basis points year over year. So turning to slide nine, I'm going to walk through the yield on our business in terms of basis points. The slide shows our revenue, operating expenses, and EBITDA before commissions as a percentage of average AUM on the current quarters as well as trailing 12 months view. Note that AUM and related results from Smith & Williamson, the private health business, one-time items, and, and other income are excluded. The Q2 revenue yield is 113 basis points, flat to the trailing 12 months. Q2 SG&A as a percentage of AUM was 49 basis points, three bips lower compared to the trailing 12 months. This resulted in an EBITDA yield of 28 basis points, which is two basis points higher compared to the trailing 12 months. This is yet another measure of improving profitability, and again, this is notable given the acceleration of growth year-to-date and related expenses. Turn to slide 10. I'll discuss free cash flow and capital uses. This slide represents the last five quarters of consolidated free cash flow on a trailing 12-month basis, as shown by the orange bars on the chart. The black line represents the percentage of free cash flow that was paid out as a dividend. Our trailing 12-month free cash flow was $46 million and our dividend payout ratio was 50%. Our remaining capital commitment to the private alternatives business is $51 million, which is $19 million lower compared to Q1 2021. Not included in this is our anticipated commitment of $50 million U.S. to an upcoming third fund managed by Instar. Capital commitments may be funded from excess free cash flow, but keep in mind there will also be further recycling of capital as monetizations occur, which will help the fund uh, to fund future commitments. In fact, after the quarter, one of our LP investments, managed by SAF, fully monetized and we received $6 million on June 24th, represent our care, representing our carrying value of the investment. <clears throat> this investment managed by, by SAF returned a gross IRR of 48% and a MOIC of about 1.9% uh, times. In addition to the returns, AGF has recorded management fee earnings and carried interest earnings of about $1.3 million since inception, and we will be recording a further $2.2 million of carried interest income in Q3 related to the same fund. This supports our cash balance, which at May 31st was $26 million. And at May 31st, we also had short-term and long-term investments of almost $178 million, along with no debt. We've also, we also have a credit facility, which provides credit to a maximum of $150 million. While we currently have no debt, we're comfortable increasing our net debt to EBITDA up to one and a half times should the right opportunity arise. We plan to deploy our capital in a balanced way, including returning capital to shareholders and investing in areas of growth, such as our private alternatives business. Redeploying this excess capital to generate recurring earnings is a key strategic priority. Turning to slide 11, I'll turn it over to Kevin to wrap up today's call. Thanks, Adrian. 2-2 was a strong quarter. AUM and fee earning assets crossed the $40 billion mark. 
EBITDA before commissions for our investment management business was $28.2 million, 30% higher than the second quarter of last year. Our margin improved by 160 basis points. We recorded another quarter of stellar mutual fund flows with improvements coming across all channels and multiple product categories. Our institutional and sub-advisory business continued to gain momentum onboarding new clients and winning business from existing clients. Our new private credit products will achieve first close soon. We were also recognized as an industry leader in digital innovation and employee engagement. We are focused on building on the momentum from the past few quarters and creating value for our shareholders over the long term. In the past 12 months, we have returned almost $70 million to our shareholders through share buybacks and dividend payments. Our strong business momentum has temporarily impacted the financial results as sales commission and DSC paid are expensed immediately and not capitalized. However, it's important to note that while growth will create short-term strain on our financial results, it will ultimately drive higher value for our shareholders. Along those lines, I'd like to reiterate our strategic priorities, which are to deliver consistent and repeatable investment performance, drive the organization to sustainable net inflows, redeploy our excess capital, generate recurring earnings, position the firm to reach $5 billion in alternative assets by 2022, and meet our revised expense guidance while continuing to invest in key growth areas. I want to thank everyone on the AGF team for all of their hard work in these challenging times. We will now take your questions. And thank you. We will now begin our question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up the handsets first before pressing the numbers. Once again, with your question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone phone. And we have our first question from Gary Ho with Desjardins. Please go ahead, sir. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc thanks and uh good morning uh my first question just on the dsc commission line that's been elevated the last few quarters can you talk about kind of what's going on uh with your strategic partners are, you, are they pushing more sales ahead of the dsc band or any other reasons you can point to? And you know, are you still confident in the growth sales activity post the June 2022 um, uh, DSC uh, change there with these strategic partners? Gary, why don't I start with that? And I'm sure Kevin might want to add some other comments. Um, first of all, yeah, you'll 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 notice that um, DSC is a proportion of our total mutual fund growth sales year over year. Q2 of last year to Q2 of this year really has declined from. It was 44% in Q2 of last year. 
and it was 36% in Q2 of this year. There was a bit of an uh, increase over Q1 to Q2, but I think what we're seeing uh, across the board is that the partners we're working with are seeing spectacular growth, uh, you know, taking advantage of uh, the industry growth as well. So they're participating in that. Um, we are trending downwards, which is the direction we uh, have been noticing, obviously, for the last number of quarters. And then uh, as we work with our dealers, what we're helping them with as they navigate through the regulatory changes, we're working collaboratively with them as they move through uh, the transition away from DSC. And I think what we've seen in the past, other dealers have transitioned with minimal disruption to their business, and we don't expect there to be uh, any material impact to our strategic direction and to that of, of the dealers we're working with. And then I just want to comment as well, um, we are also strategically focused on growing the IROC channel. And we've seen uh, certainly fiscal year to date a growth in gross sales across that channel of 167%. So across the board, um, we don't have any real concerns with the DSC ban uh, impacting our sales going forward. Dan Gary, it's, uh, it's Kevin. I'll just add to that. Um, you know, we, we've been working with our partners. We are pretty confident that they're going to navigate the change uh, given the conversations we've had. So um, we don't see a large disruption as we get to June of 22 at all. Perfect. Okay. Uh, thanks. And then my next question, um, Kevin, was have you, can you update us on your house view on the portfolio positioning side, um, kind of views on interest rate, et cetera? And can you also uh, talk a little bit about the institutional pipeline as we look out? Yeah, I'll take the first part and I'll uh, let you talk about the institutional piece. But, you know, I think you know, for most of you guys who know uh, me, I'm a little bit cautious about where we are. We've come a long way. Um, you know, the market will tend to move in front of the economy, so the economy's catching up now. Uh, but we've had a strong first half. Um, there will be volatility as we get into the fourth quarter, I think, probably this summer. So we're positioned within our balanced portfolios, sitting on a little more cash. Um, we have some of our anti-beta uh, ETF uh, hedges in those portfolios. So if we get into a drawdown situation, those are instruments that would have a positive return. So if I remind you, we used those last year going to COVID. You know, when the market was down 35%, they were up 17. So, so we are positioned for a little bit of volatility within the equity side. And on the fixed side in those balanced portfolios, we remain underweight fixed income. Um, you know, not sure around the woods. We think there is probably a backup in rates that does occur. Um, you know, we all have to worry and wait and see if this whole uh, inflation story is transitory. So, you know, again, underweight on the fixed piece. Um, as a firm, you know, we're going to be more sensitive to equity volatility, so therefore the hedge uh, is important there. We probably have less than 20% of our assets in the fixed income side, so unlike others, a backup in rates won't hurt us as much. Um, but for our end clients, we're trying to diversify that fixed income experience by thinking about things such as, you know, how do we hack up uh, a fixed income uh, portfolio, if you will, and add new things, and you'll see us talk about private credit and roll that out, and I think it's going to be timely as we move into this next, 18-month period where rates have to try to figure out how to normalize to an economy that's trying to normalize. And then, Judy, maybe you want to talk about the institutional piece. Uh, sure. Uh, on the institutional side, certainly we're, we're encouraged by the momentum in that business. Um, our pipeline is currently modestly positive. Um, we're encouraged because over the last two quarters, our global U.S. and ESG strategies have all won institutional mandates, and we're particularly excited by uh, a platform that we were put on in the U.S., for three of our uh, mandates that Kevin mentioned in his opening remarks. That has already drawn in 100 million uh, Canadian in the last four months, and that has got a lot of momentum specifically. So we're really encouraged by that. And then just looking forward, certainly uh, the key strategies in, among the global US and ESG space continue to outperform their benchmark on a one and three year basis. And we believe that that's certainly a 
strong indicator of future sales. So again, very encouraged. Okay, great. Thanks for the color. And then uh, the other question I have is just on the dividend increase. Kind of what's the thinking here? Um, you know, 50% free cash flow payout uh, on a TTM basis. You know, what's the target payout when you look out? And how does the DSC benefit on free cash flow come into play here? Um, maybe not just on the dividend increase side, uh, but also on other capital allocation decisions like uh, like buybacks. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll start with that, Gary, and maybe uh, add it to Adrian for some color. You know, we've always had a, a balanced and disciplined approach on this, on the capital allocation story. Uh, we've talked a lot about that in the past, which is a real approach that says do some buybacks. As you know, we, if you think about last year, um, between buybacks and dividends, we returned $70 million of capital with the, the SIB being that uh, big component of that that we did in the fall. Um, you know, it's going to be a measured approach to a little bit of dividend, a little bit of buyback, and then obviously investing in our future and growth. Um, in terms of the payout ratio, um, we think about 50% is sort of a guideline on our policy. Um, you know, clearly as we rolled to 2022, our cash flows are going to improve. Um, so, you know, it's going to be something we'll keep an eye on, um, but it's going to be a very balanced approach to uh, thinking about all three. I don't know if, Adrian, if you want to add to that. Yeah, I can just add that um, definitely, you know, looking at the trends in free cash flow is, is one input into this decision. And then if you look at just the strong balance sheet as well, um, you know, we've got $26 million in cash, $158 million of long-term investments, no no debt. We can you know borrow over $100 million and still stay within one times EBITDA. So, um, you know, you can kind of pair those both together, uh, the strong free cash flow trends and the strength of our balance sheet. And it just made uh, sense to share a little bit with uh, with our shareholders. And Gary, I'd, I'd add one more piece of that. You know, as we look forward and we start to think about um, our business model and some of the trajectories that we're seeing in different things, we have a pretty fair amount of confidence in um, some of those businesses right now. So I think it, it makes sense to start um, on this path. Okay, got it. Uh, and then last question for me, uh, just on the private alts side, just notice this quarter's EBITDA seems a bit low. It was a loss of 0.5 million. I think the run rate last couple quarters been kind of in the two to three. Um, kind of, can you can you elaborate kind of what went on this quarter and any changes in, in outlook in terms of what we ex what we should expect on the uh, on on that side of the business? Yeah, Gary, I can I can take a shot at that. Um, so, yeah, as you noted, the alternatives uh, income this quarter was basically flat, and um, it was you know. Uh, pretty much completely due to uh, an adjustment related to foreign currency. So within one of our LPs, U.S. denominated investments, Canadian dollar rallies, and it causes a, uh, you know, an adjustment related to foreign currency. But I think we've been pretty clear saying that, you know, probably could be because of the size of our alternative business, it's going to be lumpy uh, quarter to quarter. But if you think about this business going forward with $150 million or so of investments and limited partnerships uh, and if you conservatively say you know eight ten percent returns from those over the longer term um, I think you can uh, count on three to four million dollars of earnings coming from uh, the general partners or other related fee arrangements um, and then you know stack carry on top of that as well you're probably talking about you know 15 to 20 million dollars of EBITDA per year or, you know, 4 million-ish per quarter 
compared to the zero uh, that we that we showed you this quarter. So I think you really have to look at that business in terms of the, the longer term nature. And you know, carry is especially lumpy when you when you factor that into the equation. But uh, as we mentioned uh, on our call and in our our, our uh, materials, there's a 2.2 million dollar number that uh, was earned in a vehicle managed by SAF that had really great returns, and that's going to be recorded in Q3. So um, Q3, we're already off to a, a good start uh, for the alternatives uh, platform earnings. Okay, so if I can paraphrase, like the, the delta between the flat to the three to four million, that was all entirely FX related this, this quarter? That's right. Okay, got it. Okay, those are my questions. Thanks very much. And thank you. We have our next question from Jeff Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Hi, good morning. Um, just have a, a question just on the, with, the, with the DSC and the low load band coming in um, next year and Ontario kind of harmonizing with the rest of the provinces. So the, the commissions then, the commission expense should go to zero when it goes into effect. And my question is, is um, in your models, like how do you see the trailer fee as a percentage of average AUM uh, increasing on a yearly basis um, just as the AUM migrates more to kind of the full trailer? Yeah, Jeff, that's a, it's, it's a good question. So, um, you know, effectively it's, it's difficult to uh, give you a forecast on, uh, you know, the revenue rate and trailers. But I think it's important for everyone to understand, as, as I'm sure you do, that um, the the elimination of DSC is a is a, is basically a temporary uh, benefit to our cash flow because, as you as you sort of note uh, in your question, there's a there's an offsetting uh, you know increase in the the trailer expense that kind of creeps in over time, and so when we do our business planning and, and, and capital planning and those sorts of things, we, we, we absolutely factor that in and we don't, we, 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 we kind of consider that. So all else being equal, the profitability in our business should remain relatively flat if you adjust for that kind of temporary benefit. Okay. And then uh, just my other question was just on the tax rates. Um, you know, it, it's been kind of, I think, consistent for the first half of the year, just wondering if uh, we should expect, or, or what? What is your guidance, or, or how we should think about the tax rate for for the second half of 2021? Um, I think it's very similar to Q2. So I would, if you wanted exact, I would call it 28.5. Okay, great. That's all the questions I have. And thank you. As a reminder, if you have a question, please press star then one to enter the queue. We will take our next question from Graham Writing with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, Adrian, just to follow up on that DSC question, so is the right way to think about this is that the trailer fee um, as a percentage of AUM, that should start to trend higher um, as we sort of move into late 2022 and into 2023 over the course of sort of the next seven years as your existing DSC funds um, sort of, I guess, run their course <clears throat> in terms of a lower trailer fee relative to the rest of your book. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, Graham, thanks for the question. And I don't want to overcomplicate this, but I kind of purposely stayed away from uh, forecasting the trailer rate because, um, you know, some of the solutions that are on the table as far as, you know, replacements for, um, 
you know, the, the DSC world may not be uh, the same products that you, that exist today. Uh, and so I think we need to stay away from forecasting um, what's going to happen on either the revenue line or the trailer line and really just think about it uh, more so from a net basis, right? So mm -hmm. for, from, from a net basis, um, you know, we should be, uh, you know, relatively stable on the, on the net revenue line over time. And the, the, the benefit that we see, uh, you know, coming from the elimination of DSC will sort of uh, reverse over time and we'll, we'll track back towards something that looks more similar to the net revenue that we see today. Got it. And, and are you alluding to sort of, you know, increased adoption of F-class or ETFs would, would have an impact on that trailer fee over time? Um, that's probably a better way to think about it. And again, I, I don't want to divulge some of the stuff that we're working on that's not public yet, but, but that's a better way to look at it. Yes, yes, Graham. Okay. Um, can you give us a little bit of color on just maybe what you're targeting with the, uh, the private credit uh, LP with SAF? Um, in terms of um, the size that you're targeting for that fund. And then um, also, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're going to uh, launch, you know, alongside like a trust version that's more applicable for retail. What's the, you know, it, should we think about the sales process there as just sort of like an incremental, your wholesale team goes out and just tries to target that fund. Is that the right way to think about that? Yeah, Graham, um, thanks for that. Uh, we are looking at it as a, sort of an incremental um, growing momentum sort of uh, asset, asset uh, gathering exercise in terms of that product. Um, it is really focused, we're really focusing it on as a, a retail product. And so the team has been out, we are getting that product onto dealer shelves. Um, we were successful just yesterday learning that we are on one of the larger platforms. And um, once it gets through all the approval processes, we do see this just as uh, another product that will be very attractive to the retail investor. And uh, probably looking at, you know, I, I'd like to see 250 million a year. Just again, this is an evergreen product that just will continue to be available in the marketplace on an OM basis through the IROC channel. Okay, understood. Um, but there is an institutional fundraise along uh, as well. You're, you're looking to raise money both. Yeah, it's available for- Yes, it is available for institutional, probably more attractive to private family offices or um, smaller institutions uh, because okay. the, the LP does feed into the uh, Evergreen or the, yeah, the, uh, feeds into the Evergreen vehicle. And as you may know about the structure of the product, the LP provides for a liquidity sleeve, which makes it attractive for the retail investor to be, have flexibility with redemptions, which I think people would like to, would, would benefit from. And they are, I think they'll find the product quite unique. Okay, uh, got it. And then the, the third Instar Infrastructure Fund, just uh, what, what are you thinking there in terms of timing and potential size? Yeah, I mean, uh, Graham, it's Kevin. Um, timing hasn't been uh, announced on that yet. My, my guess is it's probably somewhere in the next uh, year or so. Uh, and I'd say, you know, just typically in the industry, um, and not specific to Instar, but, you know, you, you typically target a size of at least your last fund. Uh, you know, those guys have been terrific uh, managers of those funds, uh, so my guess is uh, they'll have some success on that launch, at, at least a fund of the same size, but they haven't uh, targeted that yet, nor a time frame. But I, okay. I, had a guess when, I had a guess when I say we're probably somewhere in the next uh, year or so. Okay. 
And then uh, obviously a big uptick in your, your mutual fund growth sales <clears throat> when we look on a year-over-year basis. Are there any funds in particular that are doing, uh, doing heavy lifting there, or is it sort of broad-based across the, the mandates that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, uh, Graham, as you know, we've um, we've had success pretty broadly. Um, global Sustainable Growth, uh, uh, Global Select, which is a concentrated global strategy, uh, Total Return Bond, which is a really defensive bond strategy, Global Convertible, which helps drive yields on the fixed income side, uh, American Growth, uh, SMIDCAP. So we, we've had it. It's been broad. Um, and so it's not – and they're in key categories with really, really strong performance. So uh, it's really been the breadth of it, and the channel breadth is equally as impressive, not just, again, one place that we're selling, but really across the board. Okay. And my, my last question would just be the, the, the anti-beta product that you have. Um, are you seeing any increased interest in that now that we're sort of perhaps uh, in, a, in a stage in the cycle or the market where being more defensive is, is appropriate, or, or perhaps is your – your sales team, are they promoting that product um, a little bit more right now, just given where we are? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, Graham. You know, it's, it's, um, people do use it tactically, right? Um, some, some smaller institutions in the U.S. are using it tactically. And it's just a reminder, everybody, it's a, it's a market-neutral ETF that shorts the highest beta names in the market and goes long a basket of low beta names, right? And so in a market decline, high beta names tend to go down asymmetrically worse. Um, so, you know, 10% decline... Uh, would see a typical drawdown of 17% on high beta. So that short basket really works for you. What's happened over the last year and a half as we've come to the pandemic, the high beta names have actually reclassified into the cyclical stuff that's been more volatile. So think banks, think energy, um, et cetera. So to the extent that people believe that that has played its way through and that that volatile shift in the value is over, um, if we hit into a market drawdown like similar to the ones we saw in a week or so ago, you'll see that product do very well. So you're starting to see people tactically use it. We saw some pretty good-sized creates um, earlier in the month. So my expectation is when you look at some of the option books right now out there, just in the capital market side, people are starting to position for what looks to be a little choppier summer. So I would expect that we'll see some pickup there. Okay, great. That's it for me. Thank you. And thank you, sir. And we have no further questions in queue. We would like to thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. AGF's next earnings call will take place on September 29, 2021. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.